Hey there, Brenda. It's Carol. Exactly. So which leg are we operating on? You mean arm. It's all connected. Asking the right question can greatly impact your future. Are you sure you're an orthopedist? Actually, I'm a Sagittarius. Especially when it comes to your finances. Do you have a question? Are you a certified financial planner? Yes, I'm a CFP professional. CFP professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. Warning, this episode contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. You know, I'm, I'm looking at, I'm listening to you guys say this and I'm reading it here on the outline and it's like, these quotes are, this is crazy to me. This is, it's so disconnected f- between not wanting to hurt a fly and then killing your own child and then um, almost immediately um, having some sort of explanation in your brain for that 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 that's the thing to me that is just so scary about um whether or not she was sick or not i i i don't know but that's i it just doesn't make sense hey guys welcome to the first degree the true crime podcast that you might end up on my name is jack vanek i'm sitting across from alexis linkletter next to billy jensen and today is a special day because we have our first degree connection in studio with us today and he might be my favorite person in the entire world mr jared monaco hi great to be here long time listener (laughs) <laughs> long time listener first time caller long time <laughs> producer jared also produces our podcast for yes. anybody that's listening and he's kind of the fourth silent member of the first degree crew he is he is in our group chat i know we added him when we we're at crime con like because we we're trying to figure out what we we're doing over the weekend and like meeting up and whatever and now he's stuck in our, yes. our yeah, uh, you're group stuck chat in there you're stuck forever. in there forever it's a, it's a huge honor for if me. you want to put that chat on silent we won't be offended yeah so we got back from CrimeCon. Yeah. Should we have a little CrimeCon recap? I think, I think we, we should. Yeah. Number one, I'm surprised that Billy hung out with us. <laughs> you were with us most of the time. I hung out with you guys a lot. I most you guys. of, well, obviously. Well, well, Paul, well, my other podcast partner, Paul Hulls, was was hosting the event and also had you know armed guards with him and things. So We had the best time. We went out one night. Paul was there. We were there. We were on a roof, a rooftop. tin roof in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And I, is this a real moment where we were just surrounded by literally other true crime podcasters the entire yeah. time? It was so fun. So who was there? I have to say, well, I who was at CrimeCon? No, who was at that? Who was at when we were drinking that night at uh, Ernst I, Cafe? I'm, the captain was there. Ca- the from captain true from Garage. True Crime Garage. Generation Y. Generation Justin y from there. Generation Y. You are the best. I had the, like, he's the nicest guy. No, it's so funny. I think the true crime world is very interesting because 
It feels like we're in high school. There's a lot of drama happening between podcasts. There might be some love affairs happening between There's people. Clicks. It's a very fun little world that I'm glad to be a part of. Who else do we hang out with? Um, you guys oh, did, we, Tara, we had a we, great night out with Tara Newell. Tara Newell was great. So much fun. We so, met Deborah Newell, her mom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So nice. We watched Dateline with the Dateline crew. We, oh, we did. We went to that? the Dateline party. Yep. That was great. Keith I, Morrison stood behind me and Josh Mankiewicz would pull me in each time and give me like the inside scoop on what was going on on the screen, which is actually really great. I was oh God, secretly recording Nancy Grace and she <gasps> caught me and waved and I posted an excellent video on my um, Instagram story. It was amazing. Wait, can we talk about Nancy Grace's outfit? It was... Um, avant-garde <laughs> she had a, a pedal pusher like <laughs> leggings <laughs> with cowboy, cowboy boots, boots that were like there was like four inches of skin between the leggings and the boots and it was a in her hair was up in like a beehive it looked perfect for crime con honestly it was it was um it was punk rock she looked like <laughs> punk rock she was yeah. very punk rock yeah. she was true crime punk rock yeah and everybody at crime con out of any convention i've ever been to you know you go to i always tell people crime con is like comic con for true crime comic con is often kind of a shit show it's just so many people there and it's so everybody's kind of pushing each other and everything the, these are the nicest people at crime con everybody the mm-hmm. listeners that came to us that took pictures with us and, and the the funny thing about the picture taking was is that you know we had a lot of fans come up uh, to take pictures we had a lot of people that were going to um check out our swag we had very cool swag which we we'll did sh- have good pictures swag. and um thank you jack for that you're welcome swag and, queen merch queen over here yeah and um the funny thing is is that we would all we would all get together with whatever listener and then Jared would take the photo. <laughs> so we were feeling and every other podcaster was feeling like a rock star. Meanwhile, Jared is an actual freaking rock star. Rock star. <laughs> and people would be like, wait a second, are you J- are, are you Jared of the main? And then people were taking pictures of Jared and we he hijacked our, our yeah, spotlight. Like, I know. P- these people didn't know that the, like, you know, that 2,000 kids are singing Jared's songs well, every well, night. We were in the, me and Jack ran into Billy at the airport and like the, you were the first person that we saw when we got there and it was so funny because I, I mean i've only hung out with you in this setting when yeah. you were recording and i mean you were totally like you were in rock star mode like that <laughs> that whole weekend it was really fun to watch from my perspective you know i was i, I don't i didn't know what to expect so i thought it was awesome billy was the rock star he was like the uh justin the the goth justin timberlake of yeah crime con i'll take yeah. that and we were you like his, we were like the rest of NSYNC. I was for sure Howie. <laughs> I was Joey. <laughs> Stop <laughs> in NSYNC. Howie's <laughs> in the Backstreet Boys. I was JC. <laughs> JC, no. We were like Joey and Chris Kirkpatrick. Oh my god, that's what I meant when I said Howie. <laughs> I was Chris Kirkpatrick. <laughs> Well, I, I I had to do a like a, like a secret insiders uh, presentation, and Dr. Henry Lee was like showed up at my presentation, which was actually pretty fantastic. If you guys know who Henry Lee is, and it was basically my I hype, know I'm from John Bonet, my hype man for five minutes, which was weird. Oh, that's amazing. like he went up and did a bunch of jokes, and then like warming up for a bat mitzvah. Yeah, it was it was Wait, it was he did? it was so freaking great. Like, yeah, it was up? so weird, surreal. Yeah, the guy's got jokes. That he's, is he's got so true jokes. Odd. Yeah, I'm into it. The whole true crime world is just so so interesting to me and i it was great the drama you know what and i think tickets went on sale this week for next year so oh we don't have our discount code yet let's hope it's degree 20 (laughs) yeah it's probably degree 20 so so just start using that yeah orlando here we come come. what's our holiday happy national eaten oreo day (gasps) 
And let me tell you about this. If you don't think a crime could be connected with Oreos, think again. Oh, you looked one up. I certainly Your preparedness did. is really <laughs> delighting me right now. It's a now. new Billy Johnson. That's right. The Omaha World Herald reported that Timothy Wilsley, and this is from the uh, from uh, a crime online, who was at. Remember, they were right across from us. That was where um, I was born. Nancy, Nancy Grace's. That's oh, Nancy Grace's. This name. guy was there. No, 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 he wasn't there. The guy wasn't there. Oh. No, twenty, a former member of the um, of some uh, squadron. He was an airman. He killed his girlfriend by smothering her to death while they sat and watched a television show on a laptop in her dorm room. Wilsley reportedly counted to three before wrapping his arm around her shoulder and placing her in a headlock. He then switched arms and choked her to death. This guy's a freaking bastard. But here's uh, what happened. After reportedly killing her, Wilsley grabbed a pack of Oreo cookies from Dillard's dorm room and fled the scene. So he was actually being called the Oreo killer. And this was actually pretty recent, only a couple years ago. Okay, well, that's enough of that. <laughs> All right, well. Turn down your lights. Turn up your anxiety. Because it's your time to crime. There is a specific moment in your life when you learn what death is when you're a child. And whether that was through losing your first grandparent, flushing your pet fish down your toilet, or sitting down next to an empty chair in third grade, we all have a distinct memory of understanding mortality for the very first time. Today's case will bring us back to that realization of how precious and uncertain life is for all of us. In this week, we will learn how a seemingly happy and loving family was not what they seemed on the surface. And we will look into what exactly constitutes labeling someone as insane. So Jared, today's case is set in Phoenix and I've lived in this area of Phoenix. You're from this area of Phoenix. What was it like growing up there? Uh, I was born and raised, uh, born in Phoenix proper, uh, grew up on the west side of town and then ended up moving to the East Valley. So we lived in Chandler for a long time. I mean, you know, me and you talk about Chandler all the time, but, um, it was quiet and it was simple. It was very suburban and, uh, really the kind of standard being a kid story, I guess for everybody, I played sports, had a lot of friends in the neighborhood um, made a lot of friends through my parents. They sold real estate. So families coming into Phoenix that they were selling houses to usually had kids. So I'd make friends with their kids. Um, and then we'd all end up playing sports together, intramural stuff. That's how I ended up meeting, um, Kenny from the story. So, so today's case starts essentially as how many of these true crime cases start with a couple who fell in love. Jerry Toothman was born in Carlsbad, New Mexico, and she was the youngest of four children. Her mom worked as a lawyer. Her father was a local mine supervisor, and they all belonged to their local country club. Ken Thomas was one year older and was introduced to Jerry by his sister when they were in the seventh grade. A few years later, Jerry sat behind Ken in chemistry class. He was 17 working as a, at a pizza place, and she was a 16-year-old honor student. He asked her out, 
as friends, quote unquote, and then a romance blossomed. He said she was fun. She was a blast. She could play like a kid. She had a fire and a spirit and an independence that always attracted me. We spent a lot of time laughing. So Ken and Jerry got married in 1980 and they went to the Caribbean for their honeymoon. The next year, Jerry graduated from New Mexico State University with a degree in marketing and started a 15 year career in real estate. At this point, Ken dropped out of college to take a job at AT AT&T, and the years that followed took them both to Phoenix, Arizona, and Albuquerque, New Mexico. Like every couple, they endured the highs and lows of marriage, but the problems kept on coming in the form of layoffs and losing their home. They ended up separating and then ultimately reconciled. In 1998, the couple was on the verge of divorcing when Ken decided, let's give this one more shot. And it was during this reconciliation that Jerry gets pregnant with Ken Jr. Ken Sr., he he always wanted to be a dad. He cuts the umbilical cord. For a while, everything's going good. But then soon, the highs and lows come back. And Jerry, who's um, the former country club girl and college graduate, successful real estate agent, and the girl Ken fell in love with, was introduced to meth. And it sucked her in. So we had these highs and lows of sobriety. She would get sober, then she would fall off. She would get sober, she'd fall off. Six months clean, then falling off the wagon. He really wanted the marriage to work and the family to stay together, so he really tried to help and get her clean. So, Jared, tell us about meeting Kenny. I mean, in this, guys, we have to differentiate. There's a Ken Sr. and Kenny Jr. So we're going to go with Ken and Kenny. Yeah. Um. So tell us, under what circumstances did you meet him? Yeah, so I mean, I I knew him as Kenny, and we didn't we actually didn't go to school together. We were on a basketball team together, so we were on like an intramural sports league. Um, and I think I was in I, I want to say fourth grade when all of this happened. Um, and so the coach for my basketball team was my mom. She was. Yeah. Well, my mom and my dad. So like they like co-coached this basketball. But team. didn't Kenny's dad? Didn't Ken coach a year as well? Yeah, he did. So um, I actually played multiple years with with him on with the Kenny. team. So we had like this little group of little, you know, friends, little basketball enthusiasts. Cute. And we all would play sports together. We'd go from one season to the next. And uh, so yeah, it would be. I, I would see him at at practice. I would see him at. We had like little events sometimes where the families would get together. We'd have. Um, game day obviously and my mom was babysitting at the time just she, my parents sold real estate so she would babysit and there were times where he would just come over and she would babysit him so he'd be at my house um he, i think he was about a year younger than i was so you know I, I think he looked up to me a little bit and we would always hang out when he would come over um what would you guys do I remember I have like specific memories of, of being in the backyard, playing around in the backyard. It was Phoenix. It was hot. I remember it being summertime. We had like a kiddie pool. So I remember being like in this little tiny pool, above ground pool, um, and playing basketball up front. That was kind of like my biggest, like that's how I knew him, you know? So, mm-hmm. right. Um, little buds. Just little buds. Yeah. Yeah. So that means your parents knew Jerry and Ken. They did. So do you, what have they said? I mean, I'm sure they know that you are doing the podcast. Yeah. I mean, what have they said about, about them as people at that time? I, I always remember, um, 
so same profession. My parents, my mom at the time was a real estate agent, and so was so was his mom. And um, I'm sure there was some bonding over that. And I just remember her saying that um, they were nice people. They were really normal people, and you know they got along. And we were close enough where they would let her watch their kid. And you know it was it was just a normal friendship. Friendship, yeah. So the the drug, I mean, because at this point, based on the timeline, so the the drug problem had started, right? So that was not evident <clears throat> at this time. No, I not go, to your parents and not to a fourth grader. No, not at this time at all. No, you know, and I, I don't think it was until later on that maybe uh, you know my mom's a very perceptive person, and I think she started to pick up on. I think she thought maybe there was like alcohol involved or something along those lines when I was talking to her about it so but as you as like a little kid it's so funny when you know when you're younger and other people's parents there might be like things going on but as a kid you don't notice any of it at all you're just like oh there's another adult they're just as perfect as my parents are like is that how you perceived you trust Kenny's adults. mom. Yeah, you trust adults. They were just parents. There was this kid's parents. Yeah. You know, you never looked at it like there could be anything outside of Normal, your own parents. It's just the same thing, you know. The couple managed to stay together as Ken tried to help Jerry stay clean. And both of them co-parented their son and Ken Sr. did so diligently. And Jerry's parenting was spotty because she would become negligent when she had her bouts of succumbing to her addiction but she was a great mom when she wasn't involved in drugs and this is such it's so fascinating because it's like you can be the best mom but it is such an overpowering force when you are grappling with an addiction so ken tried desperately to stick it out but jerry's behavior was becoming very erratic escalating and eventually ken couldn't take it anymore and he filed for divorce from the woman he still called and considered to be the love of his life and it is two different things. You can still love someone and just be like, this isn't healthy. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, um, so a long and sometimes violent custody battle between Jerry and Ken ensued. And in court during a divorce proceeding, a lot of the struggles Jerry was grappling with sort of came to the surface for all to see. It turned out that Jerry had been hospitalized at least three times since 1993 for acute detox from methamphetamine abuse and stabilization of her mental health disorders, which included paranoid schizophrenia. And we all know drugs like meth exacerbate symptoms of such mental illnesses. Ken Sr. said, I cannot emphasize how quickly and totally meth can destroy you and your family. She stopped coming home at night or she'd come home and obsess about random things. And once Jerry actually pulled out a gun at the airport, and then she disappeared with Kenny for two weeks because someone was, quote unquote, after her. So she's dealing here with psychosis induced by methamphetamine. Yeah. Um, exacerbated, obviously, by her schizophrenia. So Jerry, at this point, had also convinced herself that Ken was, quote, one of the bad people. And she thought that he was pumping gas through these little pinholes in their acoustic ceiling to take over their minds. And she claimed to see hieroglyphics on on her toilet. And she once moved from apartment to apartment to avoid, quote, being listened to. And at one point, Jerry told Ken that he had sold her, their son to the devil. She took apart appliances, like the microwave. She took apart the sprinkler systems. 
she felt that if she had reassembled them and they worked right, that meant the government had not put any listening devices inside them. So there's clearly a lot of stuff going She's on. She's also here. not an engineer. So putting yeah. those back together is a huge challenge. I mean, she probably just broke them. Right. So, and then believe that, and then believe be, that the government ex- was... It yeah. exacerbated her yeah. paranoia. Right. We, I just want to stop you. Can you imagine the horror of your partner yeah. who loves you, who still loves you, who's just trying to do everything to be, and do the best and, thing for you. And because like she's got schizophrenia and she's not treating it and she's doing drugs. Like it's gotta be just devastating. Yeah. It was so frustrating. So, and so, so upsetting and feeling so helpless about yeah. it. And she once disappeared with Kenny when Ken was in the shower and goes to a neighbor's house. So, so Ken's in the shower. He comes out of the shower. They're not there. And she goes to the neighbor's house and she begs the neighbor to protect her and and kenny because she said a cult was after them another time she actually verbally attacked the ice cream lady and accused her of putting drugs in the ice cream and trying to take over the minds of the children so you know it was the schizophrenia and then her addiction she actually went through rehab five times but obviously she kept on going back and when this was all happening jared you your mom never saw any of this behavior because obviously this she wasn't containing this just her own home she was attacking an ice cream man she went over to a neighbor's house claiming about the cults like it was going beyond the home thing and you didn't your mom never saw any of this happening right no and like i was saying like i had just talked to my mom today yeah on the phone because i was trying to refresh on some of this stuff and you know in her opinion she just said that jerry was most likely an alcoholic yeah and that was the extent of of what even this morning she thought that right yeah she didn't really she just didn't know the ins and outs of this case that and also we're talking about we're talking about the late 90s and even though meth really got big in the south in the southwest right late 90s that's before it really exploded and particularly exploded in phoenix meth meth had a big problem in phoenix it did but that was like the early 2000s yeah well i mean and I mean, I'm nine. I don't remember. Uh, to me, it, w- it was... You would just think that she was, like, playing around even if you saw something like yeah, that, Yeah, and, sure. and, you know, when I really think about it, I, I definitely saw way more of his of Ken, his dad, than I saw of his mom. And I'm sure yeah. there was a good reason for that. Right. So, when Jerry was sober, none of this happened. And maybe that's... If, when she was around, maybe you were seeing sober her, too. If, well, and that's probably when she was entrusted with... With little Kenny. Little Kenny, yeah. Because Ken seemed to be kind of in control, and he was... I don't think in a shitty way. And, like, he was probably over-parenting when she was having her bouts of, obviously, succumbing to her addiction. Mm-hmm. And then when she was fine, he... he tr- it was his love of his life of, again, and right. trusting her. And, and she was probably more apparent and present. Right. And even when she was in an inpatient rehab, Ken Sr. was committed to keeping them together. And he would take Kenny to visit her every single day. So he was being a good parent, trying to keep the family good together. Husband. Good husband. And he was super worried that Jerry was going to kill herself. And at one point he said, my worst fear was having to explain to Kenny why his mother killed her, why his mother killed herself. And in the midst of the back and forth with the divorce and all the chaos, on August 2nd of that year, a judge awarded emergency temporary custody of Kenny Jr. to Ken Sr. after he challenged his wife's capability as a parent. And according to this petition, Ken stated, quote, Jerry has a severe history of mental illness as well as substance abuse. 
So Ken Sr. was ultimately ultimately awarded custody of Kenny Jr., but the emergency custody only lasted for 10 days. And on August 12th, Jerry was awarded primary custody after both parties reached a settlement in the dispute. The settlement called for Ken to pick Kenny up for school every day and return him to his mother at 8 p.m. Wow. Back in the di- not back in the day. I mean, this was 20 years ago. 97, so 23. 23 years ago. Mm-hmm. Do you think that, like, if this was happening today, do you think that the mom would be awarded custody? Yeah. Knowing that she it's had the a, same. She's been to rehab well, we X don't, many times. Yeah. I, we don't know what was, we, we can't tell what was potentially presented to the judge and how she was presenting herself to the judge. But I'm sure and the also rehab was being presented but it, but to the judge. But it's also, not necessarily, and we also know that Ken seems like he's, you know, both parties reached the settlement here. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when this is the the person that's the love of your life, the father of your, uh, the mother of your child, and she seems like she's better. You know, she obviously she knew this court gate was coming up. She's probably gotten her stuff together. Yeah, she's acting like the old the old Jerry, and well, well, right. And you have to remember too. It's like he goes to school. When do kids go to school? Seven o'clock. They get picked up at three. He's got him until eight. And then it's like, great, you just have to go sleep at your mom's. And then you're, I know where you are. I've got you the other hours you're awake. And it's kind of like enough to be like, I could take a temperature every day to see how you're doing. I can monitor whether she's taking care of you. I can monitor your, are you being nourished? Are you sleeping? Are you healthy? And I think for him, he didn't want to exacerbate the anger she was having at him by probably fighting it. Right. And I will say, as like a child of divorce... The push pull of this is miserable for the children. Yeah. And miserable for the parents because they're going through essentially a breakup that's like ego driven and all of these things. And generally, the children are obviously at the forefront, but they're sometimes more objects than, than um, the focus of where the best interest should be. Right. I, I don't know if that makes sense, but it's like a lot of this happened in my childhood. Where it's like CPS was visiting and it was horrible. It was yeah. horrible. And, you know, I I get it. It's painful for each party, you know, but I wish there was a better way because it's yeah. horrible. And I'm sure Ken Sr. in this uh, circumstance was just trying to make it as painless as possible. So right. He's like, she seems like she's fine. Let's just make it, you know, as easy as it can be for Kenny and not try to complicate things exactly and i'm sure i mean ken senior seemed like a very level-headed dude who was just trying to like do the best thing but also not upset everybody right so as we've said even though they were divorcing and their marriage is falling apart ken senior wasn't exactly trying to take kenny away from his mother we said this before she was a good mom when she was clean And Ken was struggling with the fact that he was also losing the love of his life. So he's going through what's essentially a breakup and dealing with all this. But the main focus for Ken was that Kenny Jr. was eight years old at an incredibly impressionable age. And he really his focus was protecting him, even if that meant sacrificing the love of his life in his life. So what Ken was asking for as as far as a culmination of the divorce was 50% of the time. And he just wanted 1% more so that if she fell back into her worst drug habits and into those horrible moments, he could protect Kenny Jr. if necessary until she got better. But 
When Jerry heard this and realized that this is what Ken Sr. was fighting for, she perceived this differently and she took this as a job, took it very personally and interpreted and probably as a threat. Of course. Like, you know, children, they're the most important thing once people have them. Yeah. So I can understand. But um, so she perceived it as Ken was trying to take or hurt her or take their son away from her. And she became really hostile towards him. And in retaliation of learning this, she took out a restraining order against Ken Sr. and accused him of hitting her. So this is getting bad. Mm -hmm. And we've seen this a lot of times. So at this point, Ken and Jerry were still married, but their divorce was reaching a point. It was nearing conclusion. So the stakes were getting really high where like soon, whatever terms were set, were going to be set in stone. So final custody was under consideration of a mediator with the conciliation services office before granting a final divorce decree. Jerry Thomas had undergone a battery of drug tests in August of 1996 under court orders. She tested negative on August 16th, but didn't submit to testing on either August 21st or August 23rd, claiming that she didn't have enough money for the $20 fee for each test. But it sounds like she was stalling Mm -hmm. to me. But then she tested negative on August 27th. While this is going on, the back and forth custody push and pull over Kenny Jr. persisted for months, almost cyclically. They would fight over him, call, you know, have all these disputes and then reconcile. And then things were seemingly normal for their divorce situation. And the routine remained relatively consistent in that Ken Sr. steadfastly picked his son up from school every day so he could spend time with him before bringing him to Jerry's at 8 p.m. And he also coached his basketball team, as you mentioned, with Jared here to get extra time with his son um, wherever he could. And eventually Jerry retaliates to the moves that she perceives Ken to be making. And even though Ken wasn't abusive, she took out this restraining order out of spite because she was so angry about the 51% custody situation that Ken had over Kenny. So Ken refused to stop picking Kenny up from school, but to accommodate the restraining order that Jerry filed, he would drop Kenny off at a store on the corner near the home and watch him walk to his mom's to ensure that he was safe. So he was, he was watching little Kenny. He wasn't just dropping him off and leaving. So was she trying to stop this picking up from school thing, thinking that he wouldn't be able to drive him home? I guess. Because that's what it's like, Oh, you can't come within however many feet. Yeah. And she's like, guess he can't pick him up. And he's like, Nope, gonna. Yeah. No, she's (laughs) like, watch him walk home. She was flexing the restraining order. Uh huh. Um, so at this point, Jerry's, she's in a bad place. She had just lost her car. She's behind on her rent. She can't pay her bills. And recently she'd been spotted, um, in the town stumbling around drunk. And a few days before that, she'd gone to a local restaurant, got so drunk that she passed out in one of the booths and this tumultuous back and forth and the custody battle and the restraining order and shuffling Kenny around. It went on for a good six months. Yeah, it went on for a while as it does. So, Jared, your family, your mom and dad coached the basketball team, but one year they didn't and then... Kenny's dad did. Yeah, so that would that would have been probably the most time spent around him and his family because every time we'd go to practice, it, it would be 
or a game or whatever. It would be his dad running the show. And I remember having a lot of fun on that team, as you would being nine years old, playing a sport that you're probably not very good at. Um, and so the, I mean, there was certainly like a bond that, that we both had back then that was just, I remember it being so lighthearted and so like simple, you know, and, and always thought that um, everything seemed completely normal, especially with, with the dynamic between him and his dad coaching, you know, it just seemed like... They're like your family. They're like my family. Yeah. It, was, it reminded me a lot of when my parents would coach me, you know. Did, so. um, did Ken Sr. seem like a good dad? He did. I mean, he he was. There was not. There was nothing. I mean, what what does it say about someone to go out and and coach their kids' basketball team? I mean, that that in itself is, I think, just like um, something that you do as a parent if you're trying to get involved with your kid more and trying to be a part of their life. So, yeah, I think he he was a good dad. When I was growing up, I took French in high school, but I could never get the language to stick. I wanted to be fluent so bad, but it never happened. I just couldn't focus and I couldn't practice enough and it didn't work. But thankfully, there's Rosetta Stone, which is the most trusted language learning program. And it's available on desktop or it can be used as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone is different. It immerses you in so many ways. And with its intuitive process, you can pick up any language naturally, first with words, then phrases, and then sentences. And before you know it, boom, conversations. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com first today. Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree50 and use code degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. It's almost summer and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on therealreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Staud, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 
10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. So then on February 21st, Ken Sr. went to pick up Kenny Jr. from school, and he wasn't there. And Ken Sr. hadn't been able to track down his son for several days, and he became really concerned. He didn't know where he was. So he goes looking for Jerry at her job, and she worked at this local fabric store to see if he could find her. And as it turned out, Jerry's boss, who was the owner of the fabric store, revealed that he suspended Jerry because Jerry was using drugs and her eyes looked really off and she also had some bizarre behavior going on. So she was suspended from this job. And in fact, actually, Jerry had quit the job a week prior after getting into a disagreement with her boss. So Kenny Sr. is looking for his son, Kenny. He can't reach Jerry. And he can't go to the house because of the restraining order to look for them Mm -hmm. because he's so concerned with maintaining the 51% custody he has that he's not willing to jeopardize it by knocking on her door. What if she's just not answering the phone? What if she's being stubborn and messing with him? Like he's not willing to do that. What if she's doing it on purpose to try to get him to To violate his restraining order, anything. So he calls the cops as he should. So, but what he did do is drive down the street once just past the house to see are they in the yard and like that was probably a violation but he resisted going to the door so but he's like a worried father like obviously he felt something in his gut was wrong yes he did so he told the police on the phone that he feared his wife was interfering with custodial orders and that she was afraid she was going to lose her custody altogether because she had to submit to this like final drug test as the divorce proceedings were nearing to an end. And as it does, your his mind is racing with possibilities. She could have fled with Kenny somewhere like she had done before. She could have hurt herself. She could have be on a bender and Kenny could be somewhere alone. The possibilities he was go- he was going through were terrifying and all of them were awful. And two police patrolmen, they arrive on the scene around 3.15 p.m., and they're led in by Jerry. So Jerry answers the door, yes. is what we're saying. And she has two bleeding wrists that were self-inflicted injuries. This is really not looking good. When the police entered the home to search for Kenny, they found him. But to their absolute horror. When the police entered the home to search for Kenny, they found him. But to their absolute horror, they found him dead. They found his body. So they found his body as she was walking out of the house and she placed an object which looked like a pillow next to a dumpster and then she ran. But they caught up to her. She was taken to the local hospital and then she was transferred to the police department for questioning. So what happened to Kenny? And again, this is a warning um, about what you're going to hear 
because we're talking about what happened to a child. When they approached Kenny on the scene, he had a cloth belt around his neck and it was tightened like a noose and it had locked the buckle in place. And it was there even as the boy awoke and struggled to breathe. It was wrapped so tightly around his neck that it left a pattern. Kenny had actually been strangled to death by his own mother. Jared, what was... Was this something that you even understood as a kid when you found out? How did you find out? All right, so this... Because I'm sitting here with you guys. We're doing this in real time. I did not know these details at all. So I'm a kid. I'm nine when this happens. And what did your mom... Your mom, I'm assuming, is the By one By the way, my you. mom probably doesn't know any of this stuff either. You know, the... And, and I purposely didn't, you know, we have, there's an outline that you guys have for the, for the episode and I purposely didn't want to read it because I wanted to, to find out like here and that, that is nothing like what I thought had actually happened. You know, I, I was nine when I got the news. So, uh, my mom being a mom had told me in the way that, you know, I feel like the, the only way that you, how do you communicate this to a nine year old? Um, and I knew that she knew it was bad, but you know, the, I mean, sitting here and hearing those details—that that is like, that's like the saddest thing possible. That's what did, horrible. What did she tell you? I remember her taking me, and I remember being in, alone with my mom, and her basically explaining to me that this kid, who I've known for a long time, um, or I guess to a nine-year-old, a long time, um, that I wouldn't see him ever again i remember her saying it in really vague kind of terms like that and i remember asking questions i remember saying you know well, what do you mean he comes over and you babysit him like you know is is he moving what what could this possibly like what does this mean and through the line of questioning that i think any nine-year-old would probably ask after like a vague explanation like that i you know she had to tell me eventually it's just like but well, he's he's dead and that was something that i just set off a chain kind of reaction in my mind it was like a wrestling with that idea at that age was just so overwhelming i think for me that um i it took a long time even as a kid to process that you know i i kept asking questions like i think i kept saying things like well you know what does that mean as far as like if I'm not going to see him again like he's on the team and all this it's very it's a very there's a disconnect that happens there I feel like or there was for me um, well kids are so tangible yeah like you know the team like you don't it's conceptually very hard to understand even for adults I mean yeah. we have yeah. religion we have all these things that help like numb it's, the confusion of that concept yeah. yeah because it is still the unknown is confusing yeah and and my family, my growing up, my family was religious for sure, and so I think that definitely played a part in in how my mom had broken the news to me. Like, you know, he's in a better place and all this stuff. So, um, and is he is he the first person that you knew to die? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, you know, for so me, they for me, I had never had to deal with did anything they, like this. Did they ever have the discussion with you about what death was? Did you understand the concept? The, okay, so so just as an example, going to church as a kid, you realize that. There, the whole idea is that because it was like a Christian church that we had gone to and it was like the idea of an afterlife 
taught me about death in itself, you know? So, like, I, I, I had the concept of it in my mind. And you knew what heaven was and yeah, yeah, what, yeah, yeah, yeah. what I, I, you I thought had, heaven was. There was a, yeah, all that stuff had been constructed in my mind already. Like, I, there's, you know, plenty of imagery and all the stuff that I had read on Sundays and stuff about what that entailed. But for me, this was the first time I actually had to confront wow. it actually happening in life, you know? It, it reminds me of the story that my dad would tell me so, and I go over this in the book, like, like my dad was telling me all of these, um, his life story. And he tells me the story that when I was like six years old and he tells me the story about Paul Judd and Paul Judd was this kid who was, uh, got off the school bus, dropped his lunchbox. And then the school bus ran over him at his school, you know, back in the fifties. And my dad wasn't at school that day. He was went the next day and he's like, well, where's my friend Paul? And it's like, he's not going to be here anymore. That was my introduction to death. And by him saying that, and it's like, when I started writing it, I realized like how much that affected me and affected my whole behavior about what death was because he wasn't religious, my father, you know? So he sort of just, and I think that's one of the reasons why I hate you know, you, you always going to hate murderers so much, but it's just like, why I really want to catch a lot of them. It's because of that. It's because it's like, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure what's, what's out there after. And that's, what's the scariest thing, especially because kids are so conceptual and so I guess physical in that aspect, because they're going to keep asking questions. Well, where are they? Where'd they go? Where's their body? Where's this? And where's that? And as an adult trying to explain that to a child we don't fucking know, you know, we don't know what happens after. No. So how are you supposed to explain that to this little perfect being that in a situation that's so distraught to begin with? Homicide is the ultimate crime. And Billy has said this before, and I've said this before, and that like what you're taking away is everything they've done and everything they're ever going to do. And the magnitude of that is unmeasurable. And, you know, trying to, in it's fascinating hearing because my next question is like we just heard how you interpreted it as a child, but hearing these details now, how does it make you feel about Jerry and Kenny and Ken? And like, I mean, Jared, you're like one of the most kind, compassionate people I've ever met. So like, I'm sure you're having all sorts of like, you know, like obviously the older you get, the more you, the more you see your parents as human beings, I feel like for me. And and the more I, I can look at a situation like this and, you know, like, even like working with you guys on a lot of these, a lot of these cases, just listening to what you've been talking about, it's like, I understand that this stuff is out there. Like, I understand this is this isn't like uh, a one. I'm not the only person this has ever happened to. But coming to terms with the fact that you know something this serious and this gruesome had happened to somebody that um, was just a childhood friend of mine, um, wrestling with the actual details of it. That's that's the thing that I don't think that I was like really necessarily prepared for Mm -hmm. because i had no idea this wasn't like uh my knowledge up until i had talked to you about it was you know this was um a friend of mine who i i knew that his mom had murdered him i had i knew that he was strangled but the actual like just seeing just hearing it you know is is kind of um i don't know put puts it into perspective for me you know well, and we also, um, I mean, I at least like sanitize the details because yeah. why, you know, gratuitous violence doesn't it's really not, interest yeah, us. No, um, it's more just so, I mean, I think one of the craziest things about this is that Jerry seemed to be so normal without drugs 
and I was doing some like research on meth. Meth is a crazy drug. Mm -hmm. Like the history of meth is fascinating. Like what it was intended for, what it ended up ultimately doing to our country. Um, We could do an entire like multi-part podcast on it, but you know, it is, it is crazy that she could go from like a doting mother to a murderer like in like that. Yeah. The other thing I would add, I don't know if you want to, we want more. Okay. So give us more Jared. So I, I remember this is one of my, it's, it's weird. I don't know when they say you're supposed to remember stuff from like earliest memories, but this is a very vivid memory for me was, was the several weeks or months after this had happened, after I got this news, I remember laying, I had a bunk bed at the time and I remember laying in my bed at nighttime and I couldn't sleep. And I remember staring up at the bars that would go underneath the top, like mattress, and just having a mild existential like crisis as a kid. I remember thinking about, you know, death and what happens after, and all of these things. It had triggered the, this thought process that was not a. It shouldn't be a part of anybody's life at that age. You know, it just wasn't until until this happened. And so I remember going back and. And, or I remember laying in my bed and just thinking about, you know, and just laying awake and not being able to sleep some nights. Do you do any of that now? Yes. Does this happen to me now? What time, when do I normally go to bed? Like t- an hour or two after me. Like late. Me yeah. too. Like I, I stay too. up late because. Well, Jack goes to bed at like nine. Nine. <laughs> well, Jack's like an old lady. But, yeah. yeah. But like. Don't I, talk to me after 10 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> That's why your skin looks so good. <laughs> I can't sleep though. I just I, um, I smoke weed and then I have existential crises. <laughs> right, right. No, but you had you had like a whole like a, a few years ago. You had like a huge like existential breakdown, basically. Yeah. No, I've yeah, I did, and it, you're not alone. Yeah, and I mean, as, as I think, as the weight of just life life settles in on everybody, yeah, that's 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 almost unavoidable for a lot of people, but. I think that one of the mechanisms that I use now to to escape some of that stuff is to, I just stay up until I'm dead ass tired. Same. I just go until I'm like, okay, I could just collapse right now. And I and I remember this going back to to being young and like trying to pretend that I was sleeping, you know, so that I could get away with like being awake. Because obviously, but parents are, are going to come. What, what are you doing though? While you, are you just laying awake? Are you writing music? I lay there. Or well, and then. You know, Game Boy came out and they had like, the light for it. You know, you can, uh-huh. you can, you know, whatever. Like, I, it was anything I could do to prolong going to bed. Did you write? Why music do we do that? it? I do the same thing. I'll do anything. Why do we do it? It feels like shit. Yeah, but we do it. I wasn't writing music then. I, no. I was. I. I had, but do like, you do it now though? Yes. Like when you can't sleep, do you? Of course. You break yeah. out the guitar. Yeah, at nighttime. Yeah. yeah, of course. No, I'm sorry. We were on our way home from New Orleans from CrimeCon, and I was sitting next. Well. Jack was sitting next to me and Jared was there and I saw him on his computer keyboard pianoing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Literally like he is I didn't always have my mini keyboard music. with me. So, so he had, was like was using playing, the keys, yeah, like a Y key and a T. And I'm like, oh my God, he's making music right here. Phantom of the Opera on on his QWERTY keyboard. But I love it. But yeah, now now I can channel that night owl time into like productivity yeah. sometimes but, i do too i mean yeah. i stay up and work on this stuff all night yeah kind of like being the batman <laughs> yeah batman of <laughs> but, but, batman of the main no batman uh, of true crime mm-hmm. i have one more question about that so when you're having or when you started having these sleepless nights and these little mini existential crises when you're a kid 
were you when you were thinking about that were you thinking about like what if it this could happen to me or this could happen to my parents or my sister or it would never be me it would never be inward because my parents i have my i have a fantastic family my parents were great growing up i had a really happy childhood everything was super happy and normal but it was other people it was thinking about my sister and my parents exactly like what you just said it was thinking about what happens to them what happened what do i do without them it was a very um sort of like outward like afraid for other people this is just happened to someone else it could happen to another someone else you know like um yeah it was never inward it was always who around me could this happen to you know because that was my my previous experience i think we um as like a people really minimize trauma yeah and we don't realize how jarring these things can be having to wrap your head around that kind of concept at that age and then probably as you're getting older you're probably finding out like piece by piece that it wasn't quite what you thought um and coming to terms with like details and and now i mean you just learned these and I'm sorry that you had to because they're horrible. It's closure in a lot of ways too, though. So, you know, that's why I was like, I I was looking forward to like hearing how you were going to put some of this together. And I think that, you know, for me, it's, there is a bit of closure because this was left open-ended. Nobody wanted to even talk about it after it happened. It was very, you know, I went to a memorial at his school. We like planted a tree for him. And that was my last memory. That was, there was nothing after that. It was just me wrestling with the fact that that was my last you know sort of send off right so so just as jared's mom had to sit him down and tell him about this news it started spreading throughout the neighborhood and i'm sure lots of parents had to tell their kids in the same difficult way so neighbors said that they said that jerry loved her son more than anything and that she was always a doting mother a neighbor on the scene named charlotte wiseman who was a friend of the family and a neighbor said that Jerry really didn't have anything else to live for. She idolized little Kenny and he was her world. Another neighbor named Gladys Brown said that she was a single parent and she was having such a hard time. She just lost her car and her phone. She lost her job last week and she had heard that she was losing custody of her son yesterday. Neighbor said that Kenny and his mother were always playing around constantly, camping in the backyard, riding bikes, roller skating and running around with remote control cars anything that little kenny wanted to do that she did and she didn't do anything else but play with him when he was there so from the outside they just seemed like a normal well and i think little family i think she loved kenny i think she's sick yeah i mean i don't know this is one of those things where it's like i don't want to say anything with conviction because this could be a very polarizing situation but it's like hearing that contrasted with what she did doesn't compute for me and even from what her husband ken said like it's not she clearly wasn't all bad because he was saying this is the love of my life she's a good mother fighting fighting for her to have 49 percent custody even though she was troubled yeah so i think this was just a shock for everybody where where no one's expecting you know this loving mother to do something like this right so to Kenny's father, Ken, obviously this was life ruining. This was, this was the worst case scenario. And as Jack said previously, where it's like he speculated and he had, he thought previously that her own suicide was the worst case scenario mm-hmm. in that he feared having to explain to Kenny Jr. 
why his mother had killed himself, you know, drugs, depression, schizophrenia. But, you know, this was, this was life ruining for him. And it was beyond his comprehension because he loved her. And and what we know, he never expected that she would be capable of killing her son. Of course. If that was his worst case scenario. You marry someone, you, you have them up on a pedestal. Yeah. You know, when you marry someone, it's like, do no wrong, but we're all, you know, we all, we're all human. And it's like what Jared said earlier about your parents, the older you get, become more and more human. And with our partners too, it's like, we're human. There's going to be like a few bad apples, not in a mean way, but it's not bad. So, um, this is just another warning. We're going to get into some, um, description as far as what happened to Kenny Jr. During Jerry's confession. So just a warning. So once Jerry was in custody, she started talking about what led to the murder of her son. And she told the police that in the hours before dawn, she crept into his room, slipped her size 33 tan belt around his neck and pulled it tight. She said, I didn't want to hurt him too bad. And when the police found him, he was partially on the bed. So Jerry told the police that Kenny woke up for about five minutes before she decided to do what she had done and that she asked him if he had to go to the bathroom and he said, no, he rolled over and went back to sleep. And she said, I've been going back and forth about this for like two years. This is a direct quote. I was just doing what God wanted me to do. This world isn't good for anybody. And that's not a real off the wall, crazy idea. Tons of people feel like I do. All right. So she said that after she killed Kenny, she went into the dining room. And, and this is a quote. She thought for a long time about, quote, just how weird the world is. And then she started to cut herself with a box cutter. But then she tells police that God didn't want her to kill herself. So she stopped. And it took 12 sutures to stitch her left wrist. And when police asked her if she would ever undo what she had done, which is a really interesting question to ask, she said no, because he, he's in a very, very much better place. And like I said, this is, this is her quote again, like I said, I don't even hurt flies. I see a fly on the wall or in the kitchen. I use glasses to get them outside. I mean, that's the kind of person I am, little fly or a little bug in the corner and I put it outside on a tree. When kids die, it's for a reason, you know. This is her words. Somebody's got to learn something from it. I didn't want to hurt him too bad, she later said. She, she later told the police about the act herself. <sighs> and in her mind, it's like she, she still thinks that she did the right thing. And that's the... That's the crazy thing, because you're looking at this, and we're going to get into the whole idea of what insanity is, but you're looking at this going, no sane person would ever say something like this. It just doesn't make any sense at all. And it seems like, like it doesn't even seem cold or callous or calculating. It just seems just wrong. And it's dis- almost dismissive. Yeah, I just think that, like, you know, I'm I'm looking at 
listening to you guys say this and I'm reading it here on the outline and it's like these quotes are this is crazy to me this is it's so disconnected f- between not wanting to hurt a fly and then killing your own child and then um, almost immediately um having some sort of explanation in your brain for that that mm-hmm. that that's the thing to me that is just so scary about um whether or not she was sick or not i i i don't know but that's i it just doesn't make sense well i was uh doing some research and we have to get into this at some point so might as well be now but i was doing some research on and everybody knows there's a meth epidemic everybody watch everyone watch breaking bad everyone knows what meth is but i don't know if you guys have actually like googled what like meth does to your brain so i did so basically, this guy named Dr. Richard Rawson, who is the associate director of UCLA's Integrated Substance Abuse Programs, said that they did an experiment. I'm not saying he did it, but there has been an experiment done on animals that compared dopamine levels uh, caused by various stimuli. So sex causes dopamine levels to jump from 100 to 200 units. Cocaine causes them to spike to 350 units. Methamphetamine you get a release from the base level to 1250 units, 1250 units. So sex is causing 300, cocaine 350, and that's how amazing meth is. So for your pleasure, 12, pleasure sensors. Exactly. So, and this is what drugs activate. It's the same as video games. It's the same as roller coasters. Chocolate does it, but like, you know, you get, you guys get the idea. Things that cause pleasure. So it causes essentially 12 times as much release of dopamine as you get from food, sex, and pleasurable activities. So there's nothing else like it. I mean, other than probably heroin, but that's not what I was examining in this, in this episode. So when the drug wears off, obviously users experience profound depression and feel the need to keep avoiding, feel the need to keep taking the drug. But when they keep taking the drug, they become extremely depressed when they don't get the same reaction. And then you have to add in that she's a paranoid schizophrenic. Yeah. So So she has mental health issues to begin with. So and you get the paranoia. So the same way. Okay. so this is how I know how people understand meth like Adderall. When you're in your sense, when your senses are heightened, you get into this fight or flight kind of mode. It's why you're more jumpy. It's why you can be scared if someone walks in on you just even briefly when you're an Adderall or something. Meth does that times like 500. So when you take some meth, you're just like, everything scares you. Like if you have a thought, like what Jared and I were talking about, about death, you will fucking spiral and think you're going to die and get paranoid and start trying to stop that. Like this is what we're dealing with. And this was a normal woman who off of meth and on her presumably schizophrenia meds was normal and loving and it's horrible. It's horrible. I want to... Uh, can I add something into here? Of course. Okay, so as you were talking about that, so there's this subreddit called Explain It To Me Like I'm Five. So I just looked in the sub... That Jared introduced me to. <laughs> ELI5. Yeah. ELI5. Um, but I just Googled, what does meth do to your brain? Explain it to me like I'm five. And there was a subreddit about it. And this is was the top answer on it. And it's very interesting. So... Some person answered and it says, meth makes you really, really happy, more happy than you could ever get without 
drugs, but it also reduces your ability to become happy. It very quickly reaches a point where you have to keep using meth because you can never really feel happy without it. Then another person added, it's not like a goofy happy. It's the kind of happy where everything is fascinating. Everything. You love life and you love being alive. You feel strong, confident, and able to meet any challenge. It's a lie. This amount of pleasure extracts equal pain, horror, and misery. I'll never forget the screaming, yawning emptiness of my soul. I wanted to tear the flesh from my face with my fingernails and swallow a nuclear bomb to blow every atom of my body as far away from each other as possible. But I didn't have enough strength to even lift my hands, nor could I sleep. That's how meth makes your brain feel. And you know where meth came from? I mean, meth was for war. Meth was for soldiers in World War II. So it's fascinating. We don't have time to get into the history of meth. You can be a good person and still get addicted to meth and do horrible things. Mm -hmm. But you could have started as a good person. And I'm not justifying Jerry's behavior, but hearing the people who like went to bat for her, for who, who knew her, I feel like we are dealing with two different people. And yeah. I think it's okay to say like on meth, Jerry is an evil murderer and off meth. Jerry is sorry, probably. Mm-hmm. So Jerry was obviously arrested and ended up being charged with first degree murder. And she was facing the death penalty. The trial approached and the judge would not allow a smiling picture of Kenny to be shown to the jury, claiming that it would be prejudicial, but they would be allowed to see a single autopsy photo. He justified this by saying that he looked quote unquote peaceful in this picture. By day nine of the trial, Ken Thomas Sr. had his usual seat at the end of the front bench, directly behind the prosecutor and next to his younger sister. He listened intently as the witnesses went on and on about Jerry's mental health, her history of meth use, and her beliefs that he was he was evil incarnate. Jerry was firmly entrenched in her beliefs that a vast satanic cult existed in her community and that aliens shined red laser lights under her house and that reading the Bible would protect her. Ken was pissed about the trial, telling the media that this isn't about my child. It's become about Jerry, which is unfortunately what it always was about. Also saying that he didn't die quickly and I knew his mom killed him and the thought of his realizing this eats me up. And... There were a bunch of articles that said, like, he was pissed at the clinical tone of the trial. So it was less of... He was just like, you're talking about this like it's like a a Mm. corporate litigation. Yeah. That's what really bothered him. Like, he's like, this is a person... My son, you know? And they were talking about, like, stole the life of a child. They talked about it like it was a transaction. Yeah. And And, like his son was like an object. Yes. And it understandably is deeply upsetting. Hey there, Brenda. It's Carol. Exactly. So which leg are we operating on? You mean arm. It's all connected. Asking the right question can greatly impact your future. Are you sure you're an orthopedist? Actually, I'm a Sagittarius. Especially when it comes to your finances. Do you have a question? Are you a certified financial planner? Yes, I'm a CFP professional. CFP professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. 
Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games. So on day 11 of the trial, jurors actually reject the insanity defense. And the prosecution argued that Kenny was actually killed out of anger. So this was the motive that Jerry learned that custody was actually going to be granted to Ken. And in a confession that was played for jurors at the trial, Jerry said that, quote, Kenny was getting messed with real bad. And she's been asking God for months to please come down here and do something and take him up there where he's safe. So the defense was hoping that she would be found guilty, um, except insane. And that verdict would allow her to be sentenced to a mental hospital instead of a prison. And if she was insane, jurors would have to decide if it was self-inflected, uh, if the insanity was actually self-inflicted with years um, from the years of meth abuse. So there's a lot of variables um, going in with this trial. So Ken Thomas said that Jerry started using meth in the 80s, and it caused that rampant paranoia like you were talking about before. She said He said that it took control of her from the first time she tried it. And prosecutors argued that state law at the time said that a person cannot be found guilty except insane if he or she suffers from disorders that result from acute voluntary intoxication or withdrawal from alcohol or drugs. Which is fascinating. Yes. Because you go from like the example would be if you get into a freak car accident Mm -hmm. and it's an accident, which you're not liable, really, like it's a fucking accident to you were drunk and there's an accident. Like, that's the only thing I can liken it to, where they're saying, you can't blame your mental disorder if it was exacerbated by meth. The judicial system determines whether or not you're insane based on your ability to recognize whether what you are doing is con- is right or wrong. wrong. Yeah, exactly. And she knew. She's like, I, I had to get, I had to, you know save him from the world she knew it was wrong she ran from the cops she tried to kill herself after but did she think it was wrong i don't she know thinks, in she sobriety, seems to think it was right in sobriety she thought it was wrong right. this is the thing and that's where this like this meth implication changes things because on meth she's like it makes total sense and meth she thought it was completely justified right but she thought sober, she was doing you know she's, she's crying in court like in in the meth was her decision yeah. So, you know, you take a mind altering substance willingly and it changes your cognitive abilities. It's still your fault. But it was also revealed in court that Jerry had, I mean, this is how severe her drug problem is. She's accused Ken of injecting Kenny with mind altering substances, took him to the hospital, had him check for needle puncture holes. Like, I mean, this went on and on. And her defense attorney really harped on these things, like how severe her mental illness was where she's she had a nurse check her son for puncture holes because she thought her son was she thought her husband was injecting her son with something and three doctors for the defense testified that jerry didn't know what she was doing wrong when she killed kenny and the prosecutor argued that she probably believed that she was going to end up getting the short end of the stick in regards to her son so the prosecutor was arguing that like she was getting desperate because she was losing custody and losing a grip on her family. So, as a result of that, she decided she was going to take care of the problem herself, which is a horrible way to put it, but 
lawyers are such people. And uh, on that day, that's when she took the belts. I don't need to keep going with what the lawyer said in court. Mm -hmm. So Ken was interviewed on the day of Jerry's sentencing. And he said that by that point, he still could not bring himself to clean out his son's room or the toy room in his Chandler home. The doors were all pulled shut still. Ken's favorite picture of Kenny holding a basketball hangs on the wall still, taken a year before his death. Ken coached his son's team that season. They took trips to Disneyland and to SeaWorld. They played soccer and football, and they liked to watch meteor showers together. The Maricopa County judge sentenced Jerry Thomas to 35 years before she'd be eligible for parole. Before she'd be eligible for parole. He decided against giving her life without parole, stating that it's clear to me that the defendant loved her son. It's clear to me that the defendant is living in a hell that she's going to be stuck in for the rest of her life. Oh, I just saw Jared react viscerally. How does him talk about this? So I, I didn't know what the sentencing was. I was actually curious to find that out today because I, I didn't know. Like I said, the last memory I have of any of this was his, his memorial. memorial. So, That's so sad. So, so sad. seeing that and just seeing it laid out like that, you know, and, and thinking about the the haunting, the, the spread to just his friends and people that knew him, I can't imagine being a part of the family. And hearing that a judge said that and factored that into his sentencing kind of blows my mind. Um that she's going to be living in a hell in, in hell. She's going to be stuck in for the rest of her life. That's that's dark. I can imagine. That's dark. I mean, I get guilty when I do something really trivial. Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, was I mean in that meeting? Like that what is what I lose sleep over. I can't imagine right. something like this. Ken was wearing an angel pin on his blazer and um the Mesa detective was actually comforting him, putting a hand on his shoulder. And after the sentence was handed down, a reporter asked Kenny what he was going to do now. And he responded, quote, I'm probably going to go home and cry. The prosecutor said, quote, this case has never been about guilt or innocence. It's about insanity and how drugs and mental illness intertwine. And whether paranoid delusions could be excuse enough to justify a mother killing her son while he slept. Family members interviewed said nothing can fill the void that Kenny's death left. You can't get over losing a child, said Carol Gallivan, who is Kenny's aunt. I just felt she used Kenny to get what she wanted. I'm sorry, but that's not love. Love. During this whole experience as the as this case was working itself through the system, Ken Sr. was extremely vocal in the media in terms of the impact drugs had on his wife and his family. He said in one interview, she was my high school sweetheart. I loved her for 22 years. She was the love of my life until she killed Kenny. If she would have tried and gone straight, I would have loved her for the rest of my life. She killed my child. She stopped existing in my world. The person I love does not exist anymore. And he remembers the last night he saw Kenny. They had dinner at Taco Bell and Kenny got three toys and they talked about the new Star Wars movie that was coming out. And as he got out of the car, he said, I'll see you tomorrow and we'll go see Empire Strikes Back. I love you. Oh my God. I know. I'm choking up. 
Oh. Well, I know what he's saying too, though, because this is 1997. Mm-hmm. So they were talking about Star Wars. I'm pretty sure Taco Bell had Star Wars uh, toys around that time uh, with their kids' meal. And they were going to go see Empire Strikes Back. So they were going to go see that. Oh, that's right. Empire, the remasters, right? Empire Strikes Back was the remasters. Yeah. That's exactly what that it was. was. The remasters, yeah. Yeah. Oh, damn. Yeah, that's... <sighs> so sad. So, Ken Sr. hoped his son's death would be a wake-up call to everybody else on drugs. And he hopes someday somebody will realize that this could happen to them too and that they'll quit using meth. He hopes parents will hug their children more and um, because, you know, and tell them that they're loved because you never know what's coming. And to think about, you know, being able to still say if she had gone straight, you know, she was loved my life until she killed Kenny. And we know that she was doing a lot of, bad things before that yeah but even to say that he was still willing this is how much their 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 the love that he had for her but she was under this spell i want to say something real quick and we made it a point in the beginning of the episode to mention her accolades she was a college graduate she had a career for a long time they were country club members this is not i feel like people when they think of people addicted to meth they think like you know, I don't know what they think, but this was someone accomplished yeah. who was in love, who was married, who had a child, who had a family who loved her. It is not a biased drug. No, meth yeah. doesn't discriminate. No, you try it. You're susceptible. Yeah. yeah. And this is not an anti-drug podcast, but the the number is even the ones I talked about earlier about what it does to your dopamine is terrifying. So I just want to say like she was not kind of in this demographic that a lay person would consider susceptible to something like this. And lo and behold, it's like, it doesn't really matter if you, any, everyone is. So you have to be really careful. And that has to be the hardest thing for Ken senior to kind of think about over and over and over in his mind where it's like this person assumingly inherently wasn't a bad person. No, they, no, I mean, that, he probably then, just sees her turning around in chemistry class, like the love of his life. Yeah. Met, you know, met, met her 22 years ago. Like, the nostalgia and the pain of all of that is, like, unfathomable. And then you also don't know, I mean, you, I mean, think about as a kid, I mean, you were a little bit more uh, perceptive as adults on on potentially what's going on with people. But Jared knew this family. Um but didn't uh, didn't have any idea, and even his mom, your your mom, knew this family and As a thought perceptive and thought woman, it was alcohol yeah. instead of meth. And alcohol is completely uh, different than meth, which is why. And and this was the last kind of thought that I had on all of this was I went into this thinking that this was going to be a matter of um, if I can't have custody of of my son, then nobody no, can. Yeah. That was how I for the last however many years of my life, twenty two years of my life had interpreted all of this you know so knowing that there was this whole other element and that which is actually what the case ended up being about for the most part was the effects of of meth 
and the and i guess the the behavioral response to something like that and how that played such a big part in all that. i had no i had no idea that that was even a, an element in any of this i think um something really great to take away i mean if there is such a thing in a case like this is like things are rarely so black and white um and that's with everything we talk about we talk about like kind of the media shifting conversations and kind of making generalizations about cases and things like that there are everything is intricate like human beings are complicated well relationships and we're talking about literally the most violent thing in the world homicide like there there's no way that that's ever a simple thing there's always so many layers whether that be mental health or just straight up psychopathy or whatever it is there's there's always so many more layers to something that you can usually like describe in a sentence exactly so you know this case kind of came up in an interesting way jared and i have been dating for around a year we started a podcast around a year ago and he never really even mentioned the story until kind of recently and it's it's just an interesting thing where even when you don't think that you're connected to something and even when you don't think that something has affected your life in a certain way, there usually is something that has. Yeah. I mentioned it in passing. I didn't, th- I was like, Oh yeah. I, when I was a kid and you were kind of like, what? Yeah. And I had no details and it's, it's, I've been blown away tonight by how much stuff you're able to find out. Alexis. I am like, a machine. It was also interesting. Cause when you first started telling me about this case, we tried to Google it. There was literally nothing. There's nothing. I don't even know if there's an article on it. Nope. At all. No. I, we weren't able to find anything. And I, I started to feel crazy because I was like, I remember this so so vividly. So many parts of this. Like, yeah. And there was there's just no trace for me to go back and... So I was just kind of in the dark for a long time on what even actually ended up happening. So, Alexis, you're, you're a magician, let me tell you. Like, everybody is connected to something crazy. And it impacted you... In a way that you don't really understand. Yeah, in a way that still affects you today because this is the first time that you ever learned about death and that is, or had to come to terms with that. And that's a very complex um, process to even understand as an adult. Yeah, and you became an artist and you can actually listen to his music now. Yeah, so everybody go download the Mains new album now available on Spotify. Oh, thanks guys. Jack's in the music video. I'm not in the music video. You're not in the music video? I'm just, music try, video? I'm just trying to bait people. <laughs> we haven't filmed it yet, so you might be. <laughs> yeah, uh, Can shit. I be in it? Sure, yeah, why, why not? Okay. Billy? Billy? Yeah, Ooh, it. is it going to be a Slender Man music video? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it is now. Right, yep. Hell yeah, Billy just walking around in the background, like all <laughs> creepy and gangly. Imagine Billy on stilts. Oh my god. <laughs> there were people on stilts in Louis- in uh, New Orleans. Did you see those? We there saw stilts? Why yeah, did we try crazy. to take him from him? Be like, yeah. these are my legs. <laughs> yeah. No, back. they thought he was already on stilts. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like, oh. yeah there were people coming out to me. Can we do take like, a picture with you? you yeah, exactly. today, dude? Yeah. <laughs> That's not why, that, why they were asking <laughs> for a picture, Billy. <laughs> Whatever. Okay, well... um, I guess if anybody is listening to us for the first time that maybe met us at CrimeCon, thanks for listening. We love yes. you. We had the best time. We had the best time. Um, we have a lot of new listeners, so I hope this is a good episode for you guys to jump onto. And if you are connected to a crime or murder or other Stranger Than Fiction story, please write us. Um, hello at thefirstdegreepodcast.com. Or at the first degree, at Alexis Linkletter, at Billy Jensen, at Jack Vanek, or at Jared Maine. So that would be on Instagram or uh, or the Twitter. 
I don't want to use this Twitter anymore. Nobody Only you, Billy, because you have so many followers on it. You How want many people. Followers does he have? A lot. How many? No, no, like forty or something. Oh, I had more than that, and I deleted my Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, these seventy thousand are useless. <laughs> Jack is the coolest person I've ever met. Yeah. But yeah, slide into our DMs. Tell us your story. No story is too small. And no, no story is too small. Listen, Absolutely. we told the story today, and there wasn't a single Google article about it. Alexis can find literally anything. Online. Alexis the machine. Alexis the tank link letter. Alexis and- the tank of information dot com link letter. <laughs> That's a fun website. Yeah. Okay. Well, until next week, um, keep your friends close, but not that close. Are you going to happy Oreo day? Happy eating Oreo day. We have that candy bar in the car. We do. I'm excited. Happy having Oreo McFlurry in the fridge day. Hey there, Brenda. It's Carol. Exactly. So which leg are we operating on? You mean arm? It's all connected. Asking the right question can greatly impact your future. Are you sure you're an orthopedist? Actually, I'm a Sagittarius. Especially when it comes to your finances. Do you have a question? Are you a certified financial planner? Yes, I'm a CFP professional. CFP professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.